Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin Podcast. I am your host, Tim Gonsler. Now, today's episode takes us into the seventh inning of Game 3, where we sit down with 2021 WBCA Hall of Famer, Rusty Tiedemann. In this episode, uh, Rusty goes into his background um, as a player and then as a coach. But as a player, you know, playing for his dad, um, you know, a three-year starter on that UW Oshkosh uh, in the program, Played on the national championship team. Again, he's going to mention his dad over and over, a guy that's been mentioned on this show so many times. Uh, the lessons that he's learned from him and just this honor, what it means to him to go into the WBCL Hall of Fame. And also now he is the, you know, him and his father, Russ, are the second father-son duo to ever be inducted um, into the WBCA Hall of Fame. What you're also going to get out of this episode is an absolute masterclass in coaching high school baseball. I mean, if you're looking for baseball content, here's your guy. And I don't know about you, but my team's got lucky enough to play Rusty. Uh, his last couple years at Watertown, and I'm sure you've had these moments before, but as the game goes on and at the conclusion of the game, you have this thought as, wow, I just got outcoached. And I had that thought so many times. And, I'm, well, I'm thankful now. At the time, it was tough to digest. There was some rough car rides and bus rides home. But at the time, it was like, man, I got to get much better. My program's got to get much better because I just got outcoached. And that was it was very humbling. And, and to this day, I'm very thankful for Rusty's friendship and companionship as you know he opens his doors to his program um, for us today but also you know outside of this uh, outside of this episode so all right without further ado um wbca hall of famer 2021 class rusty tiedemann hey coach thanks for coming out with us today my pleasure absolutely well um give us some give us some of your background um you know maybe where you grew up and some of your playing background and then what got you into coaching okay well, Tim, I, I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. My dad was the uh, was a professor at the UW Oshkosh, and he was the head baseball coach there for many years. And uh, I think most people in the state of Wisconsin that uh, um, are familiar with Wisconsin baseball history are familiar with probably with my dad. Um, I think he was a tremendous coach. Uh, but I grew up in Oshkosh, and I went to Oshkosh North High School. I played for Harlan Quatt there, who was another uh I think excellent baseball coach and, and a very, very good person and enjoyed my time playing for him. And then I went to Oshkosh and uh, I played for my dad for four years. Uh, we had some, some very good teams, uh, not necessarily because of me, but because of a lot of the people that I had the, the pleasure of playing with. I played with Terry Jorgensen who played in the major leagues, was a very good player. We had uh, in my four years there, <clears throat> we won. I, I spent four years there as a as a player and one year as a uh, student assistant coach. And in those five years, uh, we won the conference all five years and uh, went to the national tournament all five years. And uh, we won it uh, one year, uh, 1985, and then two years we took second, my senior year, and then the year that I coached, we uh, we finished runners up. So we had some really good good teams and some, some good players. And a lot of those guys went on and played uh, professionally for, uh, for some time. Georgie was the only one that uh, made the major leagues, but uh, there were a few other guys that uh, got drafted uh, and played in the minor leagues as well. So from there, um, then I, I got the job at Watertown high school. Um, actually, I, I first was hired as a part-time teacher at Milton high school. And I was fortunate because 
Jerry Schlem, the legendary football coach there, was uh, the father of a good friend of mine, Todd Schlem, who I played baseball with. And uh, so I, I knew him and, and Jerry Schlem actually kind of got me the job there as a part-time teacher at Milton. And I, um, the kind of the, the handshake agreement was I would come there and, and I would teach. They had a one semester bubble that they needed me to, they needed a teacher for. And so I, I taught there for the one semester. Uh, as it turns out, the Watertown job opened up halfway through the semester. But part of the deal was I had helped coach football. And uh, I did. Um, and granted, I was, I was the get back coach. That's the guy on the sidelines that tells everybody to get back. That's, uh, that was essentially my job. <laughs> but hey, I was another body out there doing the best I could and, and trying to help out. And uh, we ended up winning the state championship that year. Uh, Milton won the Division Three title. Uh, that was Jerry's second, I believe, state championship. Like I said, he was just a tremendous, tremendous football coach. I still remember a lot of the stuff that uh, that he did at that time. That was pretty amazing. But so that was an incredible experience and really got me into high school sports and, and high school coaching and how much I enjoyed it. And while I was there uh, at the end of the first quarter, about halfway through that uh, one semester that I was supposed to be teaching there, uh, the position or a position opened up in Watertown. They had a guy here by the name of Jeff Kiernan, who was a FIAD uh, teacher, FIAD in health. And he was leaving to take an administrative position uh, somewhere near the city of Milwaukee in one of the suburbs. And so they had this opening. And I remember I had applied the previous spring. And at that time, that was about 1989. At that time, there was for every applicant for a FIAD job, there was, uh, or for every opening, there was about 150 applicants. And um, so I, I didn't, you know, the only job I could get was the part-time job. And that was only because of, of Jerry Slem. Uh, so anyways, this job opened up quarter of the way into the school year. And uh, now all of those people with experience weren't applying and not that many people, I think, even knew about it. Uh, but I had fortunately sent out resumes to uh, a bunch of schools uh, the previous spring <clears throat> and the athletic director at Watertown at the time, Mike Endres was the former baseball coach and recognized the name because of my father. And uh, the part of the, the position was to coach uh, JV basketball and JV baseball. And so he actually contacted me to let me know about the opening and I applied was fortunate enough to get the job, had to leave my part-time job in Milton early, uh, but was happy to do that. And they understood and let me go, obviously. And then I got the job here in Watertown and uh, the rest is kind of history in terms of, of uh, teaching. That was 1989. I've been here ever since. Uh, that spring, that winter and that spring, I coached uh, JV basketball and JV baseball. And the, what's interesting is I got there and, and I had to start coaching basketball. I think the second or th third week I was in Watertown um, and I had never coached basketball before and I had uh, hardly ever played <laughs> basketball prior to that. So that was interesting. Fortunately, the head coach here at the time was Eli Krogan, who is another legendary coach. And I've really been fortunate to, to have some learn from some, some legendary people. And uh, Eli was the head coach and uh, he would run a morning practice. And he was at the time, the first week anyways, he was running two a days at the time you could do that. 
he'd run a morning practice and I would copy down his practice schedule. And I would run it with my JV team in the afternoon. So I'd come in the morning, watch his practice, see what I was doing that night. <laughs> and that went on for the first couple of weeks. And then I started to get a little bit of a clue as to what to do on my own. And in the meantime, um, there was at that time, the freshman coach was Bill Lechner, who was another tremendous basketball coach at Watertown, eventually became the, the varsity head coach. And uh, Bill, being the freshman coach, had coached the, the kids that I was coaching the previous year. And so he would, uh, they played in another building and they would play their games and he'd come over and he'd sit on the bench with me for our games. And he was a tremendous help because he helped me out and, and basically called the shots in the, in the game situations. So I was a little bit of a warm body uh, in both of those situations, but I learned a lot and, uh, and really enjoyed it. And then I coached baseball in the spring and that uh, was a sport I did know a little something about. Um, and then the following year uh, at that time, the head coach was Larry Madsen. And Larry became an administrator the following year and the head job opened up. And that's when I took the, the baseball head job and coached for about 16 years and then got out for about five years and then got back in for another five years and then got out again a second time. So that's the history. Well, we appreciate that. Um, so I got to go back to your playing days a little bit. So the success you had played at Oshkosh national championship teams, conference championship teams, like what kind of player were you? You know, if you had to if you had to describe yourself as a player, what was your scouting report? And I'm always curious, does your playing style have anything to do with how you coached, you know, when you put your coach hat on? Well, um, I would say I was pretty intense. I was pretty intense as a player. I was pretty intense as a coach that uh, that transferred over. And I think, you know, most people that get into coaching, get into coaching because they love competition and um, I really do. And I, and I'm pretty intense about the competition. Um, I, as a, a scouting report on me, I was a left-handed hitter. Um, I remember I batted third in our lineup um, most of the time that I was there at Oshkosh, but I was really a two hitter in the three hole. We had two leadoff hitters ahead of, uh, ahead of me. Um, Todd Schlem and uh, Kevin Reichert. Actually, it was Mike Messenger and Kevin Reichert. Uh, and then I batted third, and then Terry Jorgensen batted fourth. And Terry was a much better player than, than me or really anyone else on the team. But we had a lot of guys then hitting behind him that were big, big power hitters. And I was – my strength at that time uh, was that I could take a few pitches – and we had both Mike Messenger and, and Kevin Reichert were uh, very quick. Kevin Reichert ended up uh, getting drafted. He was, uh, and he was also a power hitter uh, by the end. But uh, originally he wasn't from a big power hitter. He was more of a get on base and, and steal bases kind of guy. And we really had two leadoff hitters. And then I was the two hitter because I would, I would tell those guys, you got one strike to get as far as you can. And I was a good contact hitter. Um, so if they were on third base or anybody was on third base in less than two outs, I like to think that I was pretty successful at getting them in. And that was my kind of my role. And I had a fairly good eye at being left-handed. Sometimes pitchers um, struggle throwing strikes. Um, and I always had a lot of walks, had a good on-base percentage. 
and the whole idea was to get as many people on base for uh, for Georgie when he came to the dish. So that was kind of my role, and I played first base while I was there. How it carried over, um, everything, virtually everything I did in my coaching was either directly or indirectly a result of something I learned from my dad. Uh, he was uh, he's just a he was a tremendous coach, much better than than I ever could hope to be. Uh, but he was, uh, you, you know, obviously you're the next generation. So you're trying to make, uh, you're trying to advance on things that, that the previous generation had done. So I would tweak things and try to do things somewhat differently, but essentially everything I ever did was some kind of a result of something I learned from him. So before I get into, you know, your coaching style and in, in, in your coaching career, I, I would like to touch on your dad a little bit. Like when you talk about like now that you've had all this time to analyze it and like, what, do you, when you look back, what do you think your dad did so well? Like what made him such an effective head baseball coach? Well, I think first and foremost, he was really, really, uh, he was a strong, stable personality. Uh, and he was honest and fair and people knew that. Uh, he, he didn't talk about people behind their back. He was very, very upfront, very honest with them, uh, and very, an easy read is what I would like to, to call him. He, he wasn't playing mind games or psychological games or anything like that. He was a very easy read. And that, you know, that's the thing that he had uh, that I think made him really easy to play for as much as, as he was an intense coach uh, himself and had high expectations. He had high expectations of himself, of his assistant coaches and, and of his players. And that was pretty obvious. Um, but he also was, it, he was a very easy read. And I think that was one of his greatest strengths. Beyond that, he was tremendously organized. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just so many things that, uh, you know, almost if not on a, a yearly or monthly or weekly basis, sometimes even on a daily basis, there would be, you know, things that he had, had said that would come back into play that I would realize that, you know, this is my philosophy and it's, and it's come from something I learned from him. So, you know, into your coaching style. So I would like to dig in more about like the, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to, my teams played against your team. So I got to see a lot. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, your, your attention to detail was second to none. The preparedness in the systems you ran would made your team so tough to beat. So like, how did you develop that style? And is, is that an accurate depiction of how you would describe yourself as a coach? Um, well, I think the, the first thing, first and foremost, everything starts in practice um, and everything starts with, with expectation and culture. Uh, there was a, a saying that uh, one of my coworkers here uh, used the other, the other day, and, and it was uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think that's very, very true. And the first thing that, that I tried to establish was expectation. And we, we would talk about expectation and we would talk about expectation with the kids. And, you know, once you start to get, have some success, 
then there becomes an expectation of success. And there's a pressure that goes along with that. And, and one of the things we would talk about very early on is, are you prepared to deal with that expectation? One of the things I noticed over my years of teaching is that when your teams that aren't very good, sometimes have a lot more kids going out. Uh, and when teams start to get good, sometimes you get fewer kids going out. And it's because they there's an expectation of success and, and not everybody wants that. And there's, you know, there's different levels to competition. And it's, at some point, you have to get to the level where you, you enjoy the competition for the sake of competition. Uh, you know, right now, my son is, is 12 years old. He's in sixth grade and he's playing baseball. And he's just getting to that point now where winning is starting to become somewhat important. And there's, there's a little bit of a, a turning point there uh, with, with players because, yeah, it's fun to go out and hit some balls and play some catch and, and do that kind of stuff when you're younger. But eventually you're going to get to the point where the true, uh, the true game is about competition. And if you don't enjoy the competition, you're not really going to enjoy the game. Uh, it's, uh, there's, there's, then you, you can go and play softball on a Tuesday night or something like that and, and that kind of stuff. And, and it's just a different, different level. So that, that culture, I think, is, is something that to be a successful program needs to be established that we're here and we're serious and, and winning's important. It's not the only thing, obviously, but uh, winning is Im important in playing well and achieving excellence or achieving a high level of, of performance is what we're striving for. Uh, and we're striving to do it in every situation. And that's, you know, that's a big part of it. Uh, Let me then, cut you off for a second. Let me cut you off for a second. So it sounds like just in, am I, a very competitive practice where there's mm -hmm. winners and losers. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. So how that's like as much as possible. How talk us through the logistics of that. I think that's something coaches talk about. Every coach sees the value in it, but very few are able to execute it in a practice. So like take us inside of a practice where competition is on the line. Okay. Well, I would say, first of all, um, and this, uh, this is something that started for me very young and I learned it from my dad. He was very organized. Practice needs to be organized. Nobody should be st standing around. Um, the, the days of the, the one hitter and eight guys in the outfield shaking balls are just, uh, those have been gone for a long time. And you, I just, it's something that, uh, that I just kind of could not tolerate. So everybody's got to be moving. Everybody's got to be working. They got to be working together. Unfortunately, um, when you have 18 or 20 kids and you have maybe two coaches, maybe three coaches, obviously a coach can't be running every drill. Kids have to pair off and run drills uh, with each other. And that's where goals and competition can help to maintain your focus in what you're doing. Um, if we had, for instance, if we had a, a the, the, you know, and it depends on your, your practice facility as well. But for us, if we had double batting cages outside and we're in the, in the batting cages, we would, uh, we would split one batting cage and we'd have two sets of, of short BP. We called it going on there. And one might be a two-strike cage where the kids are fighting off 
uh, two strike pitches. One kid's trying to strike the other kid out. And it's how many pitches can they fight off before they, before they actually strike out. And the goal of that, the other thing is you, and this is an area that everybody can always get better at. And I, I had always felt like I would try and try and try to get better at, but sometimes it doesn't work, but you always want to try and explain the concept behind it. And the whole, the, something like the two strike cage, the, the concept behind it was not to make a better two strike hitter, but it was to make a kid confident enough that they knew they could fight pitches off with two strikes. So they'd be a better hitter up to two strikes because they weren't afraid of getting two strikes. That was the idea behind it. But we would have that in one cage. Um, and then we would always have a, almost always have a live game situation going where we would have an umpire, be that the catcher or one of the assistant coaches or, sorry, or one of the assistant coaches um, calling uh, pitches. They would call hits, outs, or balls and strikes. And we would have live pitchers pitching in live game situations situations and hitters getting live at bats. We tried to have hitters get live at bats every practice. We tried to have, um, and it's one of the things that I think helped our pitching depth throughout the years was that we would, the kids that weren't getting a lot of throwing time in games, uh, were getting a lot of throwing time and getting live innings in practice. And so we would do that. Um, and then of course, when we, you know, when we would take infield, we would do an infield routine. But then we would do live innings or what we I like to call perfect innings where the coach is up with a fungo. You got a pitcher on the hill and, every, and your defense is out there and kids are running. Pitcher throws a pitch in and the coach fungos a play somewhere. But it has to be a perfect inning before the pitcher can leave the mound. So you got to play an error-free inning, uh, whether there's hits, walks, uh, whatever the coach decides to do. But the inning's got to be error-free before you move on, and we got to go through every pitcher on our staff. So we've got to go nine innings or whatever it might be. Hopefully we have nine pitchers. we got to go through nine innings or eight innings or whatever it is of error-free baseball in order to move on. We used to do other things where we do pressure ground balls, where we hit a ground ball and, uh, you, you know, and I would work the left side. It would be the, the crossfire. People call it, we used to call it concentrated infield where the left side of the infield is thrown to first base and the right side of the infield is thrown across the diamond of the shager. You got two hitters up at the plate and we would do that. And the, um, if you made an error, you had to spin your cap and we'd either do four spins or two spins, turn it backwards. And then if it turned all the way around, you had to go to the foul pole and be back in your spot. That's putting pressure on the, on the play. And uh, I remember learning that from, uh, um, there was an old guy from Texas, an old Texas high school coach. This was back 30 years ago. I watched at a clinic one time, and he talked about immediate return. <laughs> he had this southern drawl. It was great. You know, the pro guys, they don't need any immediate return, but we do. He said, so we, we have dots painted on the baseballs. Kid goes up for BP. He's got to call the color of the dot when he swings the bat. If he doesn't call the color of the dot, he goes foul pole to foul pole and comes back in. <laughs> he said, that's immediate return. And I, you know, I don't know that I get that far, but I thought, well, you know, he's got a point. You've got to, you got to have something on it. And if uh, you got to be able to handle that pressure and feel the ball in pressure situations. So we would do that. And I didn't want to do it necessarily every, every single time, especially early season when you've got uh, a rough infield. And I, I still want them getting repetitions and ground balls. 
but with the the whole spin of the cap thing, we'd probably start out with four spins before he had a foul pole, and we'd go to two spins before he had a foul pole, and and that kind of stuff. And and I always thought that that kind of helped to put some pressure on on the kids. And there was there's always a level of competition going on. In fact, we would um, we would split into two or three teams. I'd have a you know, a blue gray and a white team or a blue gray and black team or something like that. And we would play uh, short games uh, at the end where we would start with a two, two count runners on base, something like that. And blue and gray would be in the field because a lot of times we didn't have enough kids for two full teams, but we might have five on a team. So five are hitting the other, uh, you know, out of 15 kids, the other 10 are in the field and you would play finish a couple of games try to do something competitive game situation at the end of each practice. I think that's one of the more difficult parts of our sport is right. You know, basketball, soccer, volleyball, you know, there's sports where you can simulate the game. You know, you can build in competition in short spurts. Um, You know, trying to do that in a baseball setting has its struggles. So um, as you think about other ways to make practice competitive, if it's on either side of the ball, does anything else come to mind? Um, well, you're, you're right. You know, baseball's got some unique challenges to it. It's, you know, you can, basketball's a continuous game. Football, you, you know when the ball's coming to you. You know, you, you, you've got to play, and then you got to pause, and then you got to play, and then you got to pause. And in baseball, you could be sitting there, and then all of a sudden you're making a play that your season is riding on, and you have – you know, you didn't know it was coming. Um, there is no, you know, there's no magic elixir, I don't think, with that. But the more you can put kids into, into simulated game situations and, and in pressure situations, and the, the whole idea, it's, you know, I go back to my coaching in other sports, and we, we talked about shooting free throws, and, and how do you make a free throw in a pressure situation? Well, you try to create pressure situations. The the old, you know, everybody's on the line and you got to shoot a free throw. And if you don't make it, we all got to sprint kind of a deal. All those little things are just everything that you do, I think, trying to put some kind of, of punishment slash reward on it. And I know we're in a day and age when people want to put reward on things, but reward is not nearly as pressure packed as punishment. Uh, that's just a fact of life. And when you're you're in pressure situations, the the level of pressure in, you're not ever going to simulate it perfectly, but you by putting pressure uh, a punishment pressure, it actually I think simulates it better than putting some kind of a reward on it. Well, and the the competition and the intensity that you coached with and then your teams played with, like you talk about the culture and. You, I mean, it sounds like you were talking culture and creating a culture way before it was a buzzword. Um, but one thing that always stood out to me, and as I talked to other coaches, is, and take this the right way, you guys had talent on your teams, but you were always able to, to not, you seem to be able to close the talent gap between what looked like more talented teams on paper for those seven innings. So what do you think was about your guys' culture or specific teams that was able to close that talent gap? Well, you know, now we're getting into philosophy of, of, of coaching baseball and, and what you think is important. Um, I think coaching in general, individuals win games, but systems win championships. And it's important to have good individuals, especially in baseball. 
because you can have a guy that can, if you have a pitcher that goes out and dominates, you know, you can be pretty good, even if the rest of your team's not all that strong. Um, but what we, what I focused on was uh, a couple of things. The, first of all, I wanted playing us to be like pulling teeth for our opponent. I wanted, I wanted teams to hate to come and have to play us. Um, and I, part of that is being tough to score on. Uh, so we always focused on pitching and defense. Uh, defense is extremely important. Focus on the factors you can control. And in fact, when I took my five-year hiatus and I came back after the five years, the previous year, the team was, was, um, had struggled. They were well below 500. And I went through their scorebook from the previous year. And I, I, I don't remember what their record might something like six and 16 or something like that. It was, they were well below 500. And I went through the scorebook and I took out all of the airs and the walks that they had given up and saw how many games they would have won had they not done those things. And it had them well above 500. They weren't undefeated, but they were well above 500 from that. And at one of our first meetings, I pointed that out to them. And I said, you know, these are the things you can control. You can't control, you know, kids throws 90 against you. You, you can't control that. Now, granted, there's ways to put the ball in play and put pressure on your opponent, try to score runs. There's no pitcher that can't be scored upon and there's no hitter that can't be gotten out. But the things that you can control, you need to focus on. So no freebies. That was, uh, you know, that was a big part of our philosophy was, was no freebies. We want to be tough to score upon. The other thing too is, you know, and I know there's the, there was, and I dealt with this for a while, there was that theory of 40% of games are one where the winning team scores more runs in one inning than the losing team scores in the whole game. I don't know if you've heard that. Have you heard that? I think it's been out there for a while. Yeah. I think the number's even higher now. I think it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's near no, 60%. Yeah. It's near it might 60%, be 60%, something like that. Yeah. That team that has the biggest inning, you know, the biggest half inning offensively is going to win the game. Yeah. Well, there was, so, so let's say 60%, the 60% of games are won with the, with the um, winning team scoring more runs in one inning than the losing team scores in the entire game. And my response to that was simply, um, yeah, but maybe half of those games are mismatches to begin with and you're going to win anyways. And the other thing is the remaining 40% are oftentimes the big ones. Those are the ones that, that are the tight, you know, three to two, four to three games or whatever. Those are the ones that you want to win. So we, we tried to score. We always wanted to avoid the big inning, obviously. But the other thing I would point out to my kids was how often do you see a, an opponent have a big inning without a freebie? And in high school baseball, it's almost never. You could take, uh, you know, I bet the number of innings where an opponent, where someone scores three or more runs, without a walker and air being committed are it's, you know, the percentages is almost non-existent because it's, it happens so rarely that a high school team actually hits just hits for three or more runs in an inning. So by doing that, you almost eliminate your opponent's big innings. And for us, we wanted to play, we wanted to stay in ball games, play tight ball games. It helps you in you know, in the big games, because most of the big games are going to be tight games. And so we, you know, we would try to score uh, 
Obviously, if we had an opportunity to bust a game open, we would try to do that. But we were trying to look at, at just building our lead, building our lead, building our lead, and then being very tough to score on. So you mentioned systems and the systems that are in place, and you did a fantastic job explaining that. How do you teach that to your kids? Do you do it like on a white, would you do it in a classroom setting first? Would you do it like in a modified field at a gym? Because you had so many different pieces moving on. And I'm sure, you know, the beginning of the season looked differently than the end of the season, right? Everything takes time. But like, how would you systematically put in your system? Well, we would have um, in the beginning of practice each, uh, each year, we had meetings, we had position meetings um, after every practice. And kids would actually have a binder, uh, and they would uh, they would keep the the information in the particular binder. Granted, I think the amount of information that's retained from those meetings was probably very minuscule, but what it did is it gave us a base when we we're covering it in practice to go back to, and it and it and it put us on the same language. Uh, we would you know we would break down with our pitchers how we wanted to work a hitter and and. We actually broke down the, the anatomy of an at-bat between first pitch to first pitch to pivotal point and pivotal point to closing. And we had three formats for them. And we would do that kind of stuff. And we would, you know, we would go over all of our, our catching things. And granted, uh, like I said, those meetings, I don't think that there's a whole lot of information that, that was in itself retained. Like if they took a test on it, they would, they would get the answers right, but it made it a lot easier than when you're working on something in practice to be able to go back to something because your language at least was, was learned. The vocabulary was there and that's the way we would start. And then we would, you know, we would focus on, and generally I would start with, with uh, finishing practice with just some bunt defenses and, and first and thirds. And then we would go to live innings where we would mix that stuff in after I knew that everybody or felt confident that everybody knew exactly what they were doing in those different situations. And now they're facing those situations in a, in a random live inning situation. And then we would go to perfect innings where we had to be perfect. And then eventually we'd, we would go to uh, what I called short scrimmages where I'd actually have a, one of our players up hitting and we'd set up a situation in the field and, um, and one team would start with maybe runners on first and second, nobody out, and, and the hitters got a 2-2 count. And I'd have the pitcher on the mound, and I would be in front of the pitcher behind an L screen, and I would be throwing the pitch to the hitter, and he'd put it in play, and we'd have to play it live from there. We'd simulate the situation and, and go from there, and then each team would start in that same situation, and here again, it would be a competition. Whoever, whatever team scored the most runs uh, obviously won that particular night. Well, thanks for going into that. Um, you've given us so much already, and you might have touched on this a lot already, but I want you to hear it in your own words. I asked you about what you thought made your dad, you know, a great Hall of Fame coach and the legend that he is. And now you're in that category, uh, whether you want to believe it or not. And I, I know you're a humble guy, but as you really dig into, like, what do you think are your greatest strengths um, as a head baseball coach? Well, first of all, the, you know, the, for me, I think the Hall of Fame thing is, is just longevity. Um, that's uh, <laughs> that's about what it amounts to. And I I tried a lot of things in baseball, and I like to think I was somewhat innovative and, and, and tried some different things. And I was very fortunate to have a lot of really good kids and good players come through and, and good people that worked with the program and, and 
took part in the program. And uh, that's, it, it really does take a village and probably now more than ever, uh, it takes uh, several people to make a good quality program. So I think that's, that's the reason I'm going into the Hall of Fame. In terms of my, my strengths, I think were that I was, uh, I had very high expectations uh, and those were established right away. Uh, and I was pretty solid uh, sticking with my principles and people knew that ahead of time um, going into the program. And I think there were some people that may have chosen not to play because of that, but I think there were a few people that chose to play because of that. Uh, and there was, uh, you know, I think those, those kinds of things and, and organizational skills uh, and really just uh, a belief that, that you can make a difference as a coach. Um, one of the, the things that I see um, when I see someone that I don't think is going to be successful is someone who comes in and, and just thinks it's all going to be about the, you know, what kind of talent they bring in uh, and looks at that as, uh, I guess, an excuse. Because at the end of the day, if you don't feel like you're make, making a difference, then you probably shouldn't be out there. Wow. Now you mentioned that, you know, you tried some innovative things. You know, one of the questions I like to ask is like, is there something that you believe in baseball coaching wise? It could be a skill, could be a philosophy, it could be, you know, a style of play that you believe that maybe others would disagree with. You may be in the minority um, in thinking this way. So what's something that you believe in that others would disagree with you on baseball wise? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, you know, first of all, the whole, the, the play for the big inning all the time thing. Um, I think that's one thing, you know, and you see now, especially in professional baseball where they've gone to strikeouts and home runs and forget everything else. I think when some organization figures it out, kind of like the Brewers figured out that you, you don't have to have the same guy starting every game, you know, it's all about getting out. It's not about who's starting and who's coming in and who's what, and all of a sudden it made a tremendous difference for them. I think the next major league organization that figures out that when you go back to just barreling up the baseball and spraying it all over the field and getting people on base, um, that that's uh, going to be a more effective way of scoring runs. And when they, the, you know, the statisticians figure it out at the end of the year, I think they're going to find that by returning to, to more contact and getting runners in, getting runners over, and doing those kind of little things that they used to do in the old days now, instead of just getting up there and trying to hit a home run or strike out every time that that organization is going to have an advantage, just like the, uh, you know, just like the Brewers did when they, they made that change with their, with their pitching staff. I think that is one thing that uh, maybe I believe that is a little bit different. And, and as a baseball purist, I got to be honest with you, I will enjoy watching that a lot more than, than, uh, sitting there it's like watching a soccer game when you're sitting there waiting for a home run you know they're nice to see but I, all I can do is then it's, you know I don't need to watch three hours I can turn on ESPN at 10 o'clock and, and see them all and that defeats the purpose of watching the actual game but anyways I digress but that that would be one thing the other thing I would say is right now with pitch counts and uh, people getting all uh, crazy about pitch counts and putting limitations on pitch counts and one thing I, I have noticed is that uh, the arm injuries aren't reducing. They're 
becoming more and more prevalent. And I think it's in part because of the pitch counts. Back in, in the day, we would teach, and you know, I grew up learning from the Warren Spons and those kinds of people that, you know, it was all your velocity comes from your body and your arm is just a guide. And now there's this philosophy of go out, blow it out, throw as hard as you possibly can for as long as you possibly can. And, and that's, you know, and that's your pitching outing. And <clears throat> that philosophy, along with putting pitch counts, I think is actually a negative because, you know, I like the idea, uh, what the past rule that we had with the three days and the seven innings and, and that kind of stuff. I thought that was, that was fine. It was good to have that rule in place. And, you know, and there are people that maybe don't really have an understanding but, you know, after coaching for several years, I had kids, I had kids that could pitch 150, 160 pitches and it would not be damaging to their arm. Now, granted, they needed proper rest after that. But then I would have other kids that could pitch every day, but you probably didn't want them to go more than, uh, you know, 15 or 20. And it was just their arm type and their arm style and their release and, and those kinds of things. Some were more fluid. Some were less fluid. Some you could you could tell it was a strain. And some you could tell it was, you know, it was very fluid and very easy. And I think the danger with putting these kinds of rules out there is that coaches are going to believe that they're okay if they're abiding by that rule. And I'm not absolutely positive what the rule is, but I think it's like, you know, up to 50 pitches or something like that. You can bring back every other day or something like that. Well, if, if a kid is not that style of pitcher, then that is more damaging than letting him go 120 and giving him five days rest or four days rest before you bring him back again. And I, I think you, by they continue to take the, um, take that portion uh, or that feel or that ability away from coaches to decide what is best for their kids. And the more that they do that, the more they're going to get coaches that don't pay attention to what is best for their kids and uh, just pay attention to the rule. And if you're, you're coaching to the rule as opposed to coaching to the kid, I think it's more damaging to the kid. Uh, so I don't agree with, with those things. I also, I understand the whole uh, blow it out and throw as hard as you can on every pitch philosophy. If that's the style of pitcher that you, that you are, but it's not everybody's style of pitcher. And uh, I think you, you, you got to individualize your teaching to the, the type of pitcher that you have. And I don't know that everybody would agree with that. Well, since you went there, like, and you've coached high school baseball for a long time, many different decades, tremendous amount of winning. Um, you know, obviously you played at a very high level, but you've also seen baseball, you know, high school baseball change a lot in your career. So what changes are you seeing? Are there any that you like? <laughs> and then maybe the ones that uh, you wish we'd go back to a, to a different time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'll tell you what, what I saw in my second stint um, that, that I didn't really see in my first stint. Um, and that is that kids were more skilled, um, I noticed. And I think that's because we have better coaching at younger levels. Uh, I know, and uh, I know Coach Voldenich at Whitewater, and uh, he does camps and clinics. Those things have become more prevalent, and I think they're outstanding. 
I think, uh, you know, his clinics, not to put plug in for him, but, uh, but I guess I am, but I think they're, they're outstanding for kids. Some of them out there, I, I'm sure are, are a waste, but I think those are very, very good. I think there is better coaching at the, at the youth levels. Uh, I think there's more of an emphasis on coaching at the youth levels. I think with the travel teams uh, and the, the places popping up, the, you know, the individual travel uh, programs that are popping up and that have their own facilities and so on. I think with those uh, things happening that the skill levels are improving uh, for, especially for the kids that are able to do that. But I think for all kids, the skill levels and the coaching at the youth level is uh, stronger. That being said, um, I would say my second stint in coaching when I when I came out, uh, I thought kids were more skilled and maybe a little less competitive. I th think the specialization uh, of the, our youth today, sticking with one sport year round, I think it makes them more skilled in that individual sport. But I think it it takes away from the competitiveness of the the individual, um, or at least they don't have the opportunity to to enhance that or to improve that skill. Uh, and I remember having kids in the past where I always encouraged them to go out for other sports and do those kinds of things, because you learn how to compete when you're not the best player on the field. When you're clearly more talented than your opponent, competing is easy because you just know you're better than they are. But, and really, and I would tell the kids this, the, the wins that are the most fun are when you beat somebody that you know is better than you because you just outcompeted them. And the losses that are the most painful are the ones where you lose to somebody that you know that you're better than. And that all comes down to being able to compete. So, you know, maybe you're the best baseball player, but you're not a great basketball player. Well, then go out and learn how to set picks and learn how to get rebounds and learn how to do the little things to help your team win without you being the primary player. Well, appreciate that. And, um, you know, throughout your career, both as a player and a coach, you know, you've been able to win some championships. I mean, you won a national championship as a player, you won a state championship as a coach, the conference championships. I mean, all the accolades are there, but like, if you had to pinpoint, what are some of the characteristics of those championship teams? Obviously there's a certain level of talent that has to be there. I think that's a given. doesn't mean you have to be the most talented or the best talent in the state or the, or the nation, but a certain level of talent is a prerequisite. But what else, what other attributes and characteristics do championship teams have? Yeah, well, that's a, you know, that's a great question. And we just kind of led into it and it, and it really goes back to competitiveness. The, the really good teams that I have had really competed well and they were competitive kids. And most of the best teams that I had had kids that played multiple sports and had, and usually they were pretty successful at all of the sports that they played and they loved competing. And I would, uh, I would, you know, I could tell that oftentimes even early on in practice because the competition in our practices would be greater and, uh, you know, and they might, you could, you could just, you get a feel for it. Uh, and the, the thing that it, if I had, if I could go back and, uh, and change things, I would try to find more and more ways to, to get the less competitive teams and the less competitive kids try to find uh, subtle ways to get them more competitive. Um, 
and I don't know, you know, I don't know how much you can do in a couple of months season, uh, but it, uh, it's one thing, it's a, it's a skill that I think that, you know, goes along with culture, that expectation of success, that feeling that it doesn't matter who we're going to play against, uh, you know, we're going to win. Uh, we're going out there to win. Doesn't matter who it is that we're facing that kind of, of, confidence and competitiveness is just that's the the common denominator that I saw in the teams that won championships um, as opposed to you know some of the other teams and and not that you know we were ever I didn't ever have bad kids you know they every kid wanted to win and every kid you know was playing hard and, and doing their best but you could just it's confidence and competitiveness I think would be the two things well, and you might've given us one right there, but that's kind of my last question for you is like, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started coaching? Like what are the lessons learned over a, over a hall of fame career? Well, if I could go back um, and change anything, it would be any time that, that I used a word or, or, or said something that, uh, that hurt a kid internally. And, you know, my, my greatest flaw uh, is my intensity and it was also my greatest strength. Uh, and the, you know, there's an old quote that emotions can be your servant or your master. And when my emotions were my servant, um, I think I was, I was a good coach, but on the occasions where my emotions were my master, um, those were my worst days in, in coaching. And if I could go back and, and start over, um, the, the thing that I would focus on the most would be not allowing my emotions to get in the way of, of logical thinking and uh, not allow them to make me say things on the spur of the moment that, um, that could have hurt a kid. And I'm sure I've done it over 30 years. And I tried to apologize when I did those things. Um, one of the things that, uh, that if I could go back over again or could tell any new coaches, don't be afraid to admit when you're wrong because you do that and it, and it shows the human side of you. And it's the problem is that you can't take back things that you said, but you can at least apologize for them if you have. And I made tons and tons of mistakes over the years. And I tried to learn from each one, tried to get better. The problem is with coaching as with any profession or anything else, you know, the minute you, you learn how to not make one mistake, you end up finding five new ones that you can make or, or did make. And then the goal is to obviously, you know, learn from those as well. Um, but I would say going back, um, the, the area that I would, if I could change anything, it would be to be able to think more before, um, before I reacted out of anger intensity or whatever it might be. Well, I appreciate your, uh, your transparency there. Um, I got one more for you now, now that you look ahead to the, you know, you get the phone call WBCA hall of fame. Um, what are some of your favorite memories as you look back on, you know, your coaching career, you know, the, the things that landed you in the hall of fame with a, with an incredible career. Like what are some of your favorite memories that come to mind? Oh, well, you know, there's that one's there's so many. Um, it would be 
what my favorite memories are would be in, in big games, watching kids perform at a high level. Uh, and when I would, when I would see a kid that, that, you know, would make tremendous progress. Uh, and I, I would see them get things done that we've been working on that I'm very confident what we've been working on made a difference and made them better. And when they, we'd get into big pressure situations and I would get the chance to watch them perform at a high level. And, you know, one of the things we would talk to, to kids about at the beginning of the year is be easy to root for. And it was always fun when I would watch good kids that I knew were easy to root for that either maybe didn't have success too much in the past in, in other sports or even in baseball and watching them have success. Um, that's the, that's the pure enjoyment of coaching. That is the, the ultimate uh, goal and it's the ultimate reward. And there it is. Huge thank you goes out to Rusty for taking time to sit down with us today. Um, and just as you think about that episode, I mean, that's that's a listen to a few more times type episode, at least for me. I know it is. Um, you know, there's the baseball stuff, the systems, the competing, the practice structure, the in-game strategy, the philosophy, but then just a, a reflective coach thinking about ways to get better, you know, some things that he thought he did really well as a coach and where, you know, things he wished he could redo, looking back in his career. Um, you know, and I mean, this isn't just like, you know, a longevity award as, you know, to use his terms. I mean, we're talking about a guy with a 683 winning percentage, seven conference titles, three trips to the state tournament, 14 regional titles, a state runner up, and a state championship. Um, he's just done so much for the game. I'm not only in his area, but just throughout the state of Wisconsin. So just really happy for, for Rusty to get in the Hall of Fame this year. I'm looking forward to seeing him, um, you know, in Madison in, in, in February. And just another example of a phenomenal coach, you know, that's done so much across the state of Wisconsin for our game. So now as for this, uh, this concludes game three here. This is, this is the seventh inning. Uh, we do got one more game, though, so we will have seven more episodes coming out between now and the start of the high school season in mid-March. So um, until then, have a great rest of your day.